on to talk about a little bit about that, but maybe some of uh, baseball's other issues is an old friend and old professor and a great baseball writer, Lee Lowenfish. Lee, how are you? Season of misery. Wow, <laughs> that that sort of sums it up. I'm I'm fine. It's beautiful weather. Finally, the humidity's gone for a weekend. Yep. And so uh, there's there's plenty to uh, celebrate, but but unfortunately not in my my former beloved town because it's really uh, if anything can go bad, it will. It seems. Hey, I, there's no joy. That that's what that's what gets me. You and I have known each other since probably '72. I'm guessing 1972, somewhere right around then. Right. When you were professor of American Studies at UMBC. I know we've talked about this before. You are almost a lifelong Orioles fan, and I can't remember the, how that started, though. What, you, you're from New York. Was it just sort of a, 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 a fight against conventionality where everybody was rooting for the Yankees, the Giants, or the Dodgers? No, no. I, I started as a, as a New York Giant fan okay. and I actually rooted against both the Dodgers and the Yankees excepting uh in the World Series where I you know could never root for the Yankees right and um uh, the uh, I came to Baltimore to teach at Goucher before I met you okay and the Orioles were already beginning to uh get on my radar because they were beating the Yankees beginning in the mid sixties, you know, they had this amazing record of 21 out of 25 at Yankee stadium in the later sixties. And, and I have to admit that uh, being uh, a, a Mets fan and that they weren't the Yankees, um, I went to game two, the, the Koosman, uh, near no hitter against the Orioles. And I was happy for the Mets, but beginning in 70, that's when I've been orange and black forever. And, uh, and and you and I, I remember a lot was cemented when you got those great tickets for the Yankee doubleheader. Yep. I guess it was September 74 when Boog won the game as a pinch shooter in the 17th, 17th inning. That was the first game. Right. And then the second game, Earl Williams went, went berserk uh, at the fan who was shouting big money at him. And uh, <laughs> you, you don't remember. And I think I told you I met Mike Wallace at Scouts Dinner. And he told me he, he was pitching for the Yankees at that time. In fact, he I think he won the next game in that series. He told me it was his buddy growing up in suburban uh, Washington and Virginia. It was his buddy that was shouting at the uh, Earl Williams. Williams. That's funny. And he couldn't believe I was at that game. Yeah. So, you know, we've had memories. I mean, Lord. Uh, I don't know if you've had Dave Rubenstein on your show, but I've a great memory in 77. He had these tickets. I bumped into him, and I wound up as a doubleheader against Milwaukee that we swept. Dave Chris, Dave Crisone hit a yeah. home run, yeah. and, and I was sitting next to Chris Dower. And, uh, and, and so I, it was amazing the, the connections I have. And then I went to seven out of the eight games with the Yankees and in, in the, and I guess it was late July, early August, 1980, I was at seven of the eight and the eighth one, I was talking about the imperfect diamond at the Washington post uh, studios in DC. So we had our eye on that game. So, I mean, you know, there's so many great memories sitting in the bleachers with my friend, Alan from DC in 83, who actually grew up in uh, Pikesville. 
and um, uh, Dempsey hits a big homer to win the game, and um, and we're sitting in the bleachers, and Bob, Bobby Brown misplays a big ball out there. So many great memories. So now, I mean, it's it's so hard to watch, and I and you know, and it's not just Baltimore that that looks like it's having not just a bad season, but it looks like it may be irrelevant. I mean, look at Kansas City. Terrible. They had less they they listed less than twenty five thousand people. So there must have been about fifteen thousand there and, and our old friend Jason Hamill gives up eight runs in the first two innings. Uh, it isn't a game, you know? So I mean this is happening around baseball. And um I I don't uh the schedule is crazy. I mean Toronto uh, was playing on the 4th of July in Toronto, which is not their holiday. Right, right, right. I, I, it, it's the dumbest schedule I've, I've seen. And, you know, ultimately, I guess they want to make 30 teams and different divisions, but that's, uh, uh, or even more geographic, geographical divisions. I'm not crazy about that idea, but the, I think the bottom line about baseball is there's not, much leadership right now, to put it mildly. Hey, uh, a week ago, I was listening to XM Radio and uh, the show The Front Office with uh, Jim Bowden and uh, Jim Bowden and uh, Steve Phillips. And I finally heard, you, you know, July the 1st or the last day of June is Bobby Bonilla Day, you know, where oh, he gets yes, his Oh, yes, there was a big piece check. in that, right. Are, are you, were, have you always been familiar with exactly the the part that Bernie Madoff played in that that contract, that buyout. No. Well, I, Steve, I, I, I mean, I've heard that if, if Phillips, uh, the Mets had had Benia's lawyer, which was Dennis Gilbert, in fact, I think. Well, but Steve Phillips explained it in absolute detail the other day. They owed him. They were not in dire financial shape at the time. This is in two thousand or two thousand one, but they wanted desperately get Benia off the books. And they come up with a plan, and it had to be approved by both Bonilla, his agent, and the Players Association. And they came up with the idea, and this was before the Wilpons got burned by uh, Bernie Madoff. They put the $5.9 million they owed him into an annuity, and Bernie Madoff's people estimated that in 35 years' time, that five point nine million would be roughly between forty five and sixty million dollars. So they came up with a deal where they didn't have to pay Benia anything for ten years. Then on two thousand eleven, for the next twenty five years, he would get one point two million every July first. And the reason was Madoff's people sold Wilpon the bill of goods that they would make that that much return, and the Mets would actually make 15 to 20 million dollars on the deal uh needless to say they got burned for all of it yeah well the problem with planning things in baseball is you can't plan for stupidity yeah. you know yeah and and if you look through if you look through baseball history i mean how many good teams have have there been over the years over the decades you know not uh not that many, but but good organizations are the ones to model after. And I've been reading a lot for this book I'm doing on baseball scouts about the Braves built one, uh, the Royals built one. In fact, that, you know what's happening with the Royals to me 
not emotionally involved, but it's as sad as what's happening with the Orioles. I mean, yeah. the Royals were the best expansion team ever. I mean, they got to the to the playoffs and had those great series with the Yankees in in less than ten years from their creation in '69. Right. And, yeah, they were sure, they were yeah. a model organization, no question about it. And they built it. They built it through player development mainly. You know, they, they, they and um, and the Braves kind of did that too. You know, they had the big the, they did get Maddox, who uh, was a tremendous player, a trem- and and undervalued obviously by the Cubs. And um, and at that time, the Cubs, you know, were, had the were run by the Tribune Company, so they had a lot of. They had a lot of money. You know what's interesting is that the unsung hero, because he's not wanting the publicity in the Yan- Yankee rise, is Jim Hendry, who is Cashman's assistant, who stays out of the media right. glow. And and I'm, I'm sure he got burned in Chicago, but but he he helped develop a lot of those players. You know, the Cubs had a good player development system, but they just let a lot of people get away. No question about it. We're talking with Lee Lowenfish. Lee is a uh, baseball writer. Lee, tell our uh, listeners and viewers on Facebook Live that can't see you, uh, but but they're viewing the show nonetheless. Tell them about your new book. and what is it geared for coming out next April, the book on baseball scouts? No, no, people, if, if I really get all the, the work done. It could be out in a year in the 2020. Okay. And and I'm, I've, I'm in, there's a big literature of baseball scouts, but there's also uh, I've met many of them. I was honored. One of my greatest thrills was to get a baseball service award from the New York um, uh, scouting uh, group, uh, the Hot Stove League, uh, a few years ago. And I, I to me, it's always been a fascination on how do you develop talent? How do you see in an 18, 19 year old or, uh, or a 16 year old down in, uh, in the Dominican and uh, Caribbean, what somebody's going to be in, in, in the age of 20 or 21. And, and what it is, you got to understand tools. And I think that this, the best short definition of what good scouting and player development is, is that, are those tools going to turn into baseball winning skills? And it's not easy. It's not easy. And um, I'm not against some of the new statistics that are coming along, but what I am against is the people who think that exit velocity and BABIP and all these acronyms that you can't quite understand right. are the key because the, the key is, is the whole picture, you know, and, and makeup. And and makeup is uh, I saw one of the best uh, descriptions of makeup is is just how does it all fit together in the guy's mentality and I guess the hardest thing to watch the, the, with the Orioles today is to see every game there's Buck and John Russell sits you know at the dugout steps looking like something out of a Grant Wood painting uh, no emotion showing and uh, a guy robs your uh, somebody of a home run, and, and it sort of dictates the, the course of the game. I mean, and that's that's where makeup comes in. And uh, I, I'm I'm kind of amazed that there's been no no change uh, made this year. You know, I mean, I don't believe in ritual firings, but I mean, how, uh, well, I don't it's like a, to, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, a, it's yeah. a lost it's a lost season getting back. I didn't want to spend our 
20 minutes talking about the Orioles for 18 well, of it. Yeah, but, well, but yeah, it's but you such can't a go. I mean, you can't charge. I mean, of course you can. I mean, nowadays, you know, people get away with what they get away with. You can't say it's a lost season that you, that in a given day you can't come and play to win and act like you want to win. Right. I mean, I'm sure deep down they want to win. But it's so easy, and every now and then someone even betrays this publicly. But, but I'm talking, Lee, easier. I'm talking more about it's lost in the sense that clearly this is an organization that didn't have its plan of succession in place. And and as, as happens to all of us, uh, you know, age wins the battle, and the Orioles were not prepared for succession. You know, and and it's caught and up they with still them. Aren't. And, and they well, <laughs> I would say that they are probably in the midst of their plan right now. And to to fire a hitting coach or a pitching coach, uh, I, I don't think it. I, I don't think it mattered. To and, and in the long scheme of things, they're they're either going to make it or break it over the next two three years. And how badly it's broken right now. There was nothing that one of those ceremonial firings would have done. Well, I, I, I think that's part of the, uh, uh, the dilemma that the Orioles have or the perfect storm was happening, you know, yeah. because Buck is a general. I mean, Buck, I give him credit for this, you know. I mean, other man, other managers and coaches like Jim Carroll up there and the, uh, Pete Carroll up there with the with the Seahawks, you know. All right, you, uh, he fired the right. the coordinators and stuff because he wanted the job. I mean, you know, Buck is loyal loyal to his people. Yeah. But you know, as somebody, when you say lost season, why does one go to a game? And I think a lot of people aren't going. Well, I mean, uh, and and the club is uh, has kind of weighed that the the folks that are putting their eyeballs to this now are. They're slowly but surely they hired their new COO uh, the other day, which is a sign that that Peter is not really making the big big decisions because they they brought in a real veteran guy that has a pretty attractive resume. This John Vidalian, who I'm going to be doing some more research on, but uh, listen, it's it's the most miserable. This is worse than '88. This is worse than the 2010 season, which brought us Buck Showalter. You know, the first three months of that season right, right. were just absolutely awful. This is even much worse. It's much worse. And it, it always feels worse when you're in the middle of it. But yeah. I agree. I agree. Like, you know, you can say uh, uh, intellectually that, well, look, you know, 89, we went well, we contended till the last weekend of the season. Yep. But, but That's not going to happen in 2019, though. You're right, but but you know you have to give glimmers of hope to people. You know, yeah. and I don't see where that's coming from. You know, uh, we're we're talking with Lee Lowenfish, baseball writer, lifelong Oriole fan, almost lifelong Oriole fan. Right. Um, we're talking a little bit about the uh, the Orioles situation. Lee, I wanted to flip flop back. Not that I don't want to have you on again before the season's over to talk Orioles. But we've got about five or six minutes left with you. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about some of the the bigger issues in baseball right now because the sport here in Baltimore, they're down about 30%, 28% to 30% in attendance. But all across the board, uh, there's there's some significant slippage here. Is the game 
changing because of the the defensive uh, metrics, the shifting, the uh, incredible use of relief pitchers to the tune of we're going to have 5,000 more strikeouts this year than last year, I think. And uh, more strikeouts than hits. And more strikeouts and hits in given months uh, the, for the first time in the history of the game. Is the game suffering, and does it need some changes to some of these things that have come about? And I'm talking most particularly about, do you think we'll see some type of cutting back on the shifting rule by saying the fielders have to be in the infield um, and also maybe reducing the, the number of pitchers that a, pitch, that a manager can use in a given game? Well, I certainly, for the second one, I would be I would be for the uh, uh, reducing the number of pitchers that can uh, you, you do away with the one batter only. I right. mean that that to me slows it down. But as far as the other thing, there's nothing wrong with going to the opposite field. Yeah, there's not. And you know the thing about Davis this year, you know, whenever he goes to the opposite field, he gets robbed. You know. And, you know, like the play that Franco made on him the other night, that was not a good fielder from his rear end. Right, you know? right. But it was a great at bat, you know. But but, but in terms of, you know, the larger picture, which I'm glad you're raising, I, it's so hard in baseball with no strong leader for decisions to be made. I mean, just see what Gardner and uh, Adam Jones or uh, – especially Gardner the other day, the Yankees was complaining about being fined for taking too much time in the batter's box. Right. You know, uh, there's always somebody going to be hurt by a change of rule, you know, and, and what's interesting is supposedly the owners pushed for a larger, uh, roster. If some of these pace of play things were put in, but the players wanted no part of it, you know? So, uh, you see, part of the problem in baseball, and I I don't have the prescription, but I think this is the analysis, is that there's no real leadership from the commissioner except on very small things. And he's got 30 different constituencies. And the players have, what, what 600 different constituencies. Yeah. And, mo- and most of them thought they'd be multimillionaires by now. So it's it's and, and the, the contract's still got two more years to run. So... Uh, in terms of declining attendance, well, where the crunch is going to come is when TV money starts drawing, being reduced. And I, that's that's a very interesting subject, but I, it's still the greatest game. It just should not have the, the, the delays they have and the emphasis on the three true outcomes, you know, the walks, the strikeouts, and the home runs has to be, that has to be subordinated some somewhat and uh but how that's going to happen i don't know but there's so many i don't recall a year when so many teams were out of it so early hey lee one of the things about and we've got about two minutes um one of the things about shifting there's a lot of things in baseball that seem to start lower in the minor leagues and then they kind of catch on and start taking place at the major league level. Do you have any idea, are they shifting as much in the minor leagues? And the reason I'm asking is I'm wondering, I, I read Scott Boris's very interesting comments. They're somewhat self, uh, self-absorbed self about the, the role that this is particularly taking 
on left-handed power hitters. Right. Um, well, he was about Harper. Yeah, well, I'll tell you this. But, but, I'm, I, I, but my question, I, let me just finish the question, is because when you say there's nothing wrong with going the other way, if hitters were younger, you know, 19 to 22, and started seeing shifts in the minors, don't you think that would force them to start doing it at a younger age? Well, it's my answer to you is that it's beginning to happen a lot in college. In fact, North Carolina, okay. who made the College World Series Final Eight, North Carolina invested a lot in analytics, and they were the most analytic-oriented of the college teams. As it, and more and more players are coming out of colleges because the owners think that it, it's a quicker route to mm-hmm. the big leagues. You're going to see that, and you, and you see how everything's connected with this band because they, the College World Series set the, the dubious record of the longest games in their history. Yeah. They had a nine-inning game that went over four hours, wow. and all of them went up well over three. So it's, uh, you know, the, 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 the real fan doesn't care about length of game or even length of extra inning games, you know. Whether the, the the casual fan wants uh, wants this and wants to speed up, I I don't know. I mean, that's something to be uh, to really be discussed thoroughly. You know, but, but, it's interesting yeah. what what the real fans may want and where Rob Manfred may be misjudging is maybe the fans don't. It's not the time of game; it's the action within the game that might be missing with all it, these strikeouts. Exactly, and as somebody pointed out the other day, uh, with all this talk about getting the youth movements involved, the the kids and everything, the the country is getting older. There's a lot of graying going on. I mean, I'm I'm in my now upper seventies, and I I plan to be watching for a long time. And there are a lot of other people like me, and and you know that's a market and an age group that shouldn't be totally ignored. Yeah, and and we're we're we are turned off by these incessant pitching uh, changes and, and strikeouts being, you know, no longer uh, considered a bad thing. All so, right, Lee, we got to yeah. leave it at that. we got another guest coming up in just a couple minutes. Always a pleasure to touch base with you. Always uh, get a lot of wisdom from talking to you. Uh, well, it's, and, you know, it's, 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 it's the only thing you need to know is that the ball is round and the bat is round and you got to hit it square. Okay? And you got red stitches. All right. All right. Hey, thanks, Stan. Thank Always you. a pleasure. All right. There you go. Lee Lowenfish. Bye-bye.